So, Ephesians chapter 6, starting at verse 10. The whole armor of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador of chain, in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And his final greetings, so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ and love incorruptible. Good morning, everybody. Thanks for that, Dagmar. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name's Andrew, and it is not my farewell sermon. This is Paul's farewell to the Ephesian church, and there's a number of farewells in the Bible, of course. Um, our final in the series on Ephesians, Riches and Responsibilities. Um, it's, a, it's a great letter. And I don't know if you've, you know, I've challenged you a few times or I've encouraged you a few times to, to read it. And I don't know if some of you have been. Um, and whether it was encouraging. Um, I um, don't really encouraging and I pray that it's been that for you as well. And I can only imagine that it was like that for those that were listening and, and those that were hearing it. As we discovered, Tychicus, the guy that came with the letter, he would have read it out um, sitting there in the front with the leaders of the church. But even in our short skimming series, we've been encouraged and challenged too, haven't we? And this is on subjects, and I think I said that the other day. You know, we could, you could do a whole thing about salvation and preach through Ephesians. You could do something on unity and preach through Ephesians, on the church and preach through Ephesians, on marriage, on faith, um, 
mission and, and so much more. You could actually take sections out, that, out of that and really teach around that. But read as one, as they would have heard it, as a letter um, in a situation they were in with the challenges and, and all that they were, they were dealing with at the time, the message would have been really clear for them. And that's how we've looked at it. You know, and, and Paul's message to them would have been, look, you can do this. There, there's so much that God's given you and so much that, that you have in Christ. And here's the challenge. Here's what you are to do with it. But you can do this. You can be his church. You can be influential even in a challenging society, in a challenging context, in a place that, that doesn't even want you really. You've all heard of a compliment sandwich, haven't you? You know, those of you that um, have been bosses or those of you that have been a compliment sandwich, you just say something nice to the person, but you've actually got them there because you want to correct them. But you say something nice and then you say, but, you know, here's, some, here's a way, and then you sort of finish off with something nice. That's how you're supposed to do it. This letter's kind of like an encouragement sandwich, isn't it? Because right at the end now we get encouragement. We know that the first three chapters were just full of encouragement. And we know that the next chapters, chapters 4, 5, and, and the start of 6, were, were really, come on, you know, lift your game here. And then we get a, uh, an encouragement at the end. So it's a compliment sandwich. You've been given every spiritual blessing. You were once trapped in sin, but God, remember that message if you were here some time ago, but God rescued you to a living hope, a life of supernatural power. And you're a new person now. The old sinful self has gone, has died with Christ, and you belong to God's family now. And not only that, but you're indwelled by God himself. The Holy Spirit indwells you, and you are made and called to be like Jesus. That was encouragement plus. That was the encouragement that they uh, got like it. You know, act like you are. Get along, even though you might be from different backgrounds, uh, different opinions and different cultures and we spoke about that when we were talking about chapter 4. Keep your personal life clean and sin free, you know. And don't be tempted back into the old way of life. Don't take part or join with people that live that life. Don't tolerate it either. Show the world what God's love looks like. Marriage is one of the things that I've given you to show the world what God's love looks like, as well as obedience and honour. And Paul's reason for this was that he loved them. Basically, he loved them and he knew what they were called to do and he cared a lot that they were able to do that. At least through them into Ephesus, into the world that they were, part of the world that they were placed. He wanted them to maximise their opportunities. He wanted them to grow and succeed as a church. You've been given riches, know them, celebrate them, grow them and use them. You have a community, grow it. Know it, love them, and serve with them. You've been given a purpose, know that. Show it, grow it, don't get distracted or discouraged. And you've been given a wonderful saviour. Know him more, love him more, and glorify him more. Up to there he is, and now he gets to the last little bit. And now the letter's coming to an end. This is, he was imprisoned and he wasn't sure that he was ever going to get back to see them. And whilst Paul loved all the churches he wrote to, he had a special place for Ephesus. He really loved the people there. He established the church there and he'd been back there and he wasn't sure whether he was going to get back again. 
And he really wanted to know that they knew that he loved them. But you'll notice there, he, he really wants them to love him back a little bit too. He wants them to pray for him and, and remember him where he is. So let's have a look how he ends. He uses the word finally. That's how they would have known, oh, this letter's wrapping up. After everything I've said, and I know that there's a battle ahead, I want you to stand firm. You see, Paul's desire for those that he loved in Ephesus is that knowing who they are, knowing what God had given them, knowing the call that they have, that they would be able to stand firm. Not falter, not get knocked over, uh, not get sidetracked, uh, not beaten, but actually to stand firm. He, what they had was enough for them to stand solid in who they were, and, and that was a struggle for them. And he's really keen on them to stand firm. And we know how keen it is because just in just a couple of verses, verses 11, 13 and 14, he says it. He says it three times at the start. Stand firm. And to do that, to do what Paul says, they'll need to pay attention to two things. They'll probably need to pay attention to a whole lot of detailed stuff. But two things that Paul wants to emphasize. In verse 10, the first thing he says is, be strong in the Lord. And then he goes on in verse 11 to 18, which is the largest part of the scripture, the section we read, put on the whole armour of God. But he starts with be strong in the Lord. And he says, be strong in the Lord and his might. You know, and if, if a writer uses his first line to give a bit of a summary of what he's going to say next, this would be it. This would be Paul saying, be strong in the Lord and his might. And then I'm going to show you how. I'm going to tell you how. But this is his main message. I need you and I want you to be strong in the Lord, but in his might. Literally, in the original, Paul wrote, strengthen yourselves in the Lord. Now, there's a lot of focus and there's a lot of sermons and books that are given to the second part on the armour. And you've probably read some and there's poems that talk about the armour of God, uh, memes, and there's all sorts of stuff. But the thing is, you could have all the armour, but be weak and be an ineffective soldier. You could wear all the armour, but if you're not strong, if you're not strengthened in purpose, if you don't know why you're fighting, you're still weak. You know, in the army, or in, in military service, basic training... Physical strength training comes before they give you weapons, before they give you stuff. They put you through all of this regime and they've got to run and they've got to run up hills with packs on their back. They've got to do all sorts of stuff. And you can imagine a young guy says, look, I've just come to fight the war. Can you give me a gun, please? But there's a real reason they want to train them to be strong before they give them weapons, before they give them <coughs> the other things that they need for the fight. And Paul says you can't do this in your own strength. It's going to take God. It's going to take his might. He says be strong in the Lord, not be strong in yourself or what you've learned so far. Don't rely on your own can-do or experience or knowledge. Don't lean on the knowledge and opinion of others. Don't depend on the things that the world offers you or the things that are around you. Don't depend on other alliances. No, be strong in the Lord and his might. Use his might. Use his resources. 
Because he's, you know, I've just spent three chapters, Paul's thinking, I've just spent the whole half of this letter telling you about all these resources. And try to do things in, well I do, in our own strength, don't we? Or we might do things that actually sap our strength. And that was what's happening with the Ephesians, that things were taking away their strength. They might try to not try to do things in their own strength, but they would end up in alliances or lean into things or, or get involved in things that actually would draw away from their strength. On this and wrote a, a couple of chapters on this. And he talks a little bit about how um, our strength is taken away. And I think I've got the quote up there. He says this, It's as if they'd received some of the available might of God, but it simply leaked away like water in a bucket full of holes. There are, these are some of the things that sap the strength of a Christian. Read them. Committing to too many spiritual works or things. That's interesting. Too much conversation. Can you imagine that? Stop talking and get on with it. Arguments, debates and wrangling. Wrangling is an old-fashioned word for disagreements. In Africa, they still use it. They'll, they'll still talk about us you know, if you ever wrangle with them. Laziness. Put up your hand if that's your problem. Didn't think so. <laughs> Too much time in the wrong company. This is Martin Lloyd-Jones. This is a while ago. Too much foolish talk and joking. Paul talks about that in chapter 4, doesn't he? Don't, don't get involved in all A desire for respectability and image. None of us would be into that, would we? An unequal yoking with an unbeliever. Ungodly entertainment. A wrong attitude toward or doubting the word of God. A wrong attitude could not reading it, not not allowing it to spend, not, not seeing it as an, as an empirical uh, word for your life. And then he says, we have to walk on a knife edge in these matters. You must not become extreme on one side or the other, but you have to be watchful. There's quite some insight there and understanding when we're not strong in the Lord or when we do things that make us less strong in the Lord, and we need to be able to learn from those things. So this message, even just this first verse, is just as necessary for us, isn't it? When we face decisions, um, maybe challenges, uh, maybe there's fears that we have in our life. When we face pushback um, as Christians uh, for our message or for the way that we, we intend to live or the things that we stand for. When we face personal struggles... We can kind of tend to lean on our own strength and our, our knowledge and experience and, and all those sorts of things, can't we? And that can cause us to falter because we end up looking at ourselves and what we might have built up in terms of experience or knowledge. Or, But Paul reminds us that God has given us all that we need. We don't need to lean on ourselves. We can lean on Him. You know, in, in, in chapter, chapter 1, he talks about, and this is not, we have everything that you need. This is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God. You know, we couldn't um, and can't save ourselves. It took God's strength. It was his might that did that. But what we can do, and this is really important, we can train like the soldier, and we can train and stay strong in his strength. 
We can get into the Word. We can read the Word regularly. We can allow that to speak to us. We can, and however that is, we were talking about it in the office this week. I think it was the office. We were talking about um, Scripture, keeping up with Scripture. And some people prefer, no, we were talking about it in our pro-faith class, I think, weren't we? That some people find it hard to just sit and read it and, and, um, and to understand it or to hear it as a, in its context. And, and there's so many different ways that we've been given nowadays. You can have the Audible Bible. You can listen to it in a story form. You can listen to it in a length of things. So we need to train and stay in the Word. We need to train in prayer. We need to train, allow ourselves to be trained in community. A soldier usually trains with a platoon. He doesn't train by himself. Why do they do that? Anyone got an idea? When they're running up the hill, who, who, why would they run with, the, with others? So they can carry them? No, so they can beat them. Because when you train with others, you, you want to be better. You want to, you want to excel. Community is a great way to train in the Word. Mentoring, meditation, there's lots more ways. Keep training. A soldier keeps training even when he's been in service for a long time. And there's a reason for that. He doesn't just do that first initial training. He gets his gun and he gets his pack and he gets his helmet and all the, and all the tech gear they have nowadays. And then he never trains again. We know that that's not true, don't we? We know that they keep training and they go back and train. So we can say, well, we know we're saved. That's great. We've, God's given us all we need so we can just kick back. No, we've got to keep on training. That's where our strength comes from. A sports person keeps training even though they're already in a team. The soccer club that we support, they're out there every Wednesday and Tuesday night training, even though they're already in the team. They've got the shirt. And they've probably bought their shin pads and they've probably got the right shoes and everything. So there's no real reason to train anymore, is there? But they do. They train every week, even though they're already in the team. They know they belong. We can employ what God has given in order to train. And that's where the armour comes in. So what about the armour? Remember God has given us all we need? Paul goes on to say, twice in fact, in our scripture there, put on the whole armour of God. And he uses that word on purpose. The Ephesians would need to use all that God had given them to stand strong in the face of opposition. But more than that, not just to stand strong, but then also to be effective in their call to grow themselves, but also the kingdom of God where they were. A soldier that decides to go into battle with only some of the armour is not going to last long. You know, I'll just take the gun, I won't need the helmet, I won't need the flak jacket, I won't need all that sort of stuff. If he decides he's just going to take some, he's not going to last. And like a soldier, the Ephesians needed, and we need, the whole armour. Because some is as good as none. Why? Well, verse 12 lays that. He says, Because we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He gets really graphic there about spiritual power, evil power, doesn't he? Basically saying, because the enemy is crafty. It's not the soldier standing in front of you. It's not that, that ruler that's not going to give you a job in Ephesus or that person that's opposing your message. There's more behind that and you're going to need to be strong. The enemy's crafty. There are many schemes. The enemy's both offensive and beguiling at the same time. So you see it's offensive 
but we also know the Ephesian church was, was kind of led into deception even within the church. So the enemy's both offensive, but he's also beguiling and tempting at the same time. And we're fighting an enemy that's unpredictable and some real supernatural forces. And I think and I believe that's just as true today. God has given his people a call, a mission, and a course to fulfill, and Satan will do his best to stop it. And when he attacks, when he intimidates, Paul says, stand. We are where to stand. We do the Lord's work and we stand against every hint of spiritual opposition. And only when we're equipped with the whole armour can we stand firm. So what makes up the whole armour? And why is each bit important? Why shouldn't we just pick and choose some of the armour? Well, there's been, again, there's been so many detailed sermons and books on the armour and you've likely read, her, read some and heard some. So we're just going to do a little quick summary today. We're not going to go deeply into each one. But the first one is the belt of truth. Now, the belt of truth, you might have thought, well, why is a belt um, part of armour? And, and I guess in those days as well. But a soldier in those days, they, they, wore, they didn't wear jeans and T-shirts like we were. They wore, wore tunics long tunics and if they're going to put armor on if they're going to run in a in a fight the tunic could trip them up and so they would gather their robes first before they put anything else on that's why the belt of truth became the belt became the first thing they would gather their robes and they would put a belt around to hold the robes in place then put the armor on because otherwise if they didn't do that the rest of the armor would be useless because they would fall over in the first run and then they were done for Paul calls that the truth. We need to have the truth, the belt of truth, the first thing that we need to have. And why is this necessary? What if we decided to leave this one out? What would the consequences be? We'll take the rest, but the belt of truth, we don't really need that. Well, truth is one of the first things to be attacked in our day, isn't it? The first things to be questioned. You know, is that really true? Or, you know, you know, and, and look, let's, there's so many obvious examples I could talk about, but even in our data, there's so many established truths that are being challenged. Truth is really important. Truth is one of the first things to be attacked. And we might say, or we might hear, but it's too exclusive, the truth. It's bigoted. What if we choose not to use this part? Because it's a little bit too confronting, you know, and... You know, I don't want to be too exclusive. I don't want to be too confronting. I don't want to be in my friendship group or the social group. And I don't want to be seen as being too exclusive or maybe even a bit bigoted. You know, I'd like to, you know, I'd like to be tolerant. What happens if we let go first of the, the belt of truth? Well, when we start running, we'll trip up on our own robes. And the rest of the armour will become very ineffective. We won't need the rest of it. So if we don't choose that one, we're not going to need to choose the rest of it either. Then Paul says the breastplate of righteousness. Well, the breastplate covered the most vital organs. That was what that was, you know, the, the kidneys, the heart and the, the centre of them. And, you know, um, if you got hit in those areas, those were the areas that meant the difference between living and, and not living, living and dead. So the breastplate... Uh, if you could keep yourself living and keep the blood pumping, it made you uh, more unstoppable. It, it, it made you an unstoppable force. It, it made you effective and it kept you alive. 
We know that Paul is talking about righteousness that comes from God. He calls it the breastplate of righteousness. Righteousness that comes from God, not our own righteousness. And he said this clearly earlier in, in Ephesians, didn't he? So the breastplate is God's righteousness, that God's righteousness is impenetrable. Our own is shaky, but only God's righteousness is totally impenetrable. That's the only way we become um, unstoppable for the enemy with the righteousness of God because our, our applied righteousness of our own works are never enough. God's righteousness protects our most vital parts. It's, what's, it's what makes us alive and effective. And God, and it's interesting because standing firm in has achieved, not our own achievements. So we put on his breastplate. And if we decide we don't need that, that we can depend on our own achievements, which are not complete, they're not infallible, then we're weak and we leave our abdomen, as it were, our spiritual abdomen and heart exposed. And our defence against the enemy's attacks are not our own good works, they're God's righteousness. Then he says, readiness with the gospel like shoes on our feet. You know, the right shoes for the task are the best foundation. If you go on mountain hiking or mountain walking or whatever you're doing, thongs are probably not the best thing to wear, right? Uh, some would. Um, in Africa and Uganda, they turn up for work in thongs. Now, the welder comes with thongs. The bricky comes with thongs on. Ugandan work boots. But we know that thongs are probably not the best idea if you're going hiking. If you're playing tennis, that isn't going to work so well. You're going to be slow. Paul compares shoes on our feet with readiness, with being prepared. The readiness of the gospel, a gospel prepares us. It makes us ready for the walk, for the challenge, for the run or for the whatever we're doing. Ready with the right equipment, the right resources to stay strong in the battle. To make it to the end, we need the right shoes. To do better than the enemy, we need to be shod with the right things. Um, history will note that many of the armies um, in, the, in the early centuries, they all the armies, they had those tie-up sandal things. And the sandals had very thin bases. And so platoons or armies in the first centuries, well, they could only go so far in a day because their feet would get really sore. Um, and there's, a, there's a, a, an account of one army that decided to make much thicker soles and they walked three times the distance and they began to win battles because they could go further because their feet were shod with the right stuff. True story. The right foundation for winning the battle ahead is to wear or to own the gospel and to share it. You get ready for tennis by putting on the shoes. You prepare and get ready for God's work when we wear the combat boots of the gospel or the shoes of the gospel. Shield of faith. Paul says, you know, take up the shield of faith. You know, the shields of those days it weren't those little things that you buy in a toy shop, you know, with a little handle behind that. The shields of those days, and some of you might have heard these stories, they, they were almost as tall as you, as the soldier themselves. So a soldier would make his shield and they would go around like that. And they would be made of really heavy, solid wood. 
The reason for that was when you came against, uh, when, you, when you went into a battle, when you came against an enemy or were going to storm a, a wall or a city or whatever you were doing, the enemy would just shoot as many from all sides, thousands of little flaming darts. And they knew that the little darts wouldn't kill you if they landed in your arm. But what they did was they were flaming and the whole idea was that they would stick in the shield and the shield would then light up and burn. Now the idea was not so much that they knew that it wouldn't burn the shield away so that there was nothing left and they could with an arrow or whatever. The idea was that it would so panic. There would be all these flaming darts that you, you were worried about what's sticking in your shield. You would be fearful that it would burn. They would make you drop the shield. Instantly you'd become vulnerable. That was the tactic. And so the idea was to have a shield that went right around you, went strong and tall, and that was made of really solid stuff so the darts didn't stick. But if they did, it wouldn't burn. So it had, couldn't be a small shield. It had to be thick and it had to be almost all around. And the right shield meant in a, in a battle that you could stay calm and have faith that you wouldn't burn. A break or a crack in a weak or thin shield wasn't good. And Paul's saying, faith is your shield. It's our shield. And he says to take up the shield of faith in all circumstances. So clearly Paul's saying, your faith is going to be good in all kinds of circumstances, in the workplace, in the church when you're dealing with how to be together in, in unity, um, against government and, and all sorts of things. In all circumstances, you need the shield of faith. Faith is the thing that's going to protect you. And faith not only catches the flaming darts, but Paul says it extinguishes them. It extinguishes the flaming darts of the enemy. We need to build and maintain a strong faith. Back to what I was saying before, the word, prayer, community, learning. A soldier, after the battle, he would maintain his shield because his life depended on it. And it enabled him to advance against the enemy, to take ground, not in trouble, but actually move forward. The idea was they would move forward with the, and take ground. We need to maintain our faith and grow it. Our life depends on it. We need to stand behind it so that we don't panic. It enables us to advance the gospel. He then talks about this helmet of salvation, doesn't he? The helmet. And they didn't think, skull cap thing with little studs in it, little metal studs in it, but it had a bit of a plume on top. But it protected the essential part of the body, the head, the brain, the mind. And what it did was it gave them confidence and not fear. And, and that plume and symbol on top, that plume was often a symbol of what platoon. It, it identified who you were or where you were to his regiment, who he belonged to. A soldier would have been crazy to go into battle without it. And Paul uses this imagery to help us see that salvation protects our mind. Salvation, knowing that we're saved, knowing that God has done all he can to save us, gives us confidence in the plan God has for us. In Thessalonians, Paul uses the word, the helmet of the hope of salvation. And we know that in a battle, we can get discouraged, and they probably did as well. We can get tired, we can lose hope, but Paul wants us to consciously wear the helmet of salvation or the helmet of the hope of our salvation and we have. Salvation is our protection against discouragement 
our protection against the lies of the enemy. It protects us from defeat and discouragement and identifies us as belonging to God. And he finishes these bits of armour with the last one, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, a sword is definitely an offensive tool, isn't it? It's an advanced tool. It's sharp. It's effective in stopping the enemy in his tracks, if you get him right. But it needs to be a good sword, right? Can't be made of plastic, like the ones you buy in a toy shop, or the little, you know, in those LARPing games, they have the um, little foam ones. We couldn't, you couldn't go into battle with a plastic one or a, a wooden one in their day, or rubber. And that's pretty obvious to us. You're thinking, well, that's clear. You don't go in with a... Uh, you know, an ineffective or a sword made of the wrong stuff. It's got to be the right material. But it also, the swords could also not be compromised or damaged or cracked or weakened because that would equal defeat in a sword battle. So the sword needs attention. It needs maintenance. It needs sharpening. After a battle, they'd get lots of dings in the sword. They'd have to go back and they'd have to sharpen their swords. And a soldier would practice with, with the sword. He'd practice with it and he'd get to know his sword. The sword would be weighted to him. and uh, He'd get to know how it feels when I, when I thrust it and when I swing it and, and know how long it takes me to get it through the air. And how heavy is it? And he would keep learning how to use it effectively. They would train with each other and spar how to use the sword effectively. It's a great analogy, isn't it, for the word? Because a sword, Paul's talking about, is, is the word of God. It's sharp. Sharper than a two-edged sword, it says in his word. But it can't be a compromised word. It can't be wood or rubber. It can't be, it has to be the word pure. It can't be compromised version or the word can't be made of the wrong stuff. And the word needs our attention. We have to get to know it, the weight of it, how to use it, the thrust, what it's doing. We need to practice with it. We need to get to know how to use the word effectively. Fantastic analogy. It is the truth, isn't it? We know that the Word of God is the truth. And the truth is our greatest weapon for the battle to advance the kingdom in the world that we live in. And what happens when we don't add this one to our whole armour? We might say things like, ah, the truth, again, it's a bit offensive, it's a little bit confronting, maybe even a bit rude and politically incorrect. I don't want to come, you know, I don't want to lead with that. Or maybe I'll just use an alternative, a more palatable sword, one that doesn't hurt as much on first strike or is not as confronting. Well, the battle's lost and then we become vulnerable to the enemy's swords because he's sharpening them. The enemy's using the sword that he wants to use. So we can see why Paul said put on the whole armour. They couldn't afford to pick and choose or be lax. They would need it all, just like we do. And you'll notice that the armour is bookended. It's just a little interesting note, if you weren't. It's bookended by truth. The word is the truth and the belt of truth. That truth is the front and the back end of our armour. That's what gathers it all together. How will they maintain all this? He goes on to say, you know, pray. Pray in, praying at all times. Keep praying. Keep being alert with all the saints. And they maintain this by praying, by gathering together with the saints, by being in community with each other. 
that's an important way to maintain, to challenge each other. How are you going with the armour? Are you standing strong? Oh, I see that you're struggling. Can I stand strong with you or for you? Can we pray together? Paul loves them. And basically he's saying, hang in there, guys. Stand firm. You know, and those words, stand firm, would not have been lost on them. They would remember the stories that they were told. And there's a story in Exodus 14 when, you know, when the Egyptians were coming, when everything was going a little bit skew-if for, uh, for the Israelites and they were out there and they thought, this is the end. And what did Moses say? He said, stand firm. You will see the deliverance of the Lord. Do you remember that, do you remember that scripture? God was with them in Exodus and Paul saying, he is now, stand firm. And even in greater ways than they knew, the Israelites knew. So hang in there, stand firm, and you will see the deliverance of the Lord. And that's a message to us, one hope. Hang in there, stand firm. It's not always easy in the world we're in, in our social settings, our families, uh, politically, ethically, in all sorts of contexts. And even as we head out into the world, it isn't always easy the same message for us, stand firm, hang in there, stand firm in his might, in all that he has done. And you, we too, will see the deliverance of the Lord. So Ephesians, what a great letter. Can you just imagine them listening to the letter? Can you imagine them, this Tychicus guy comes along and he reads this letter out and it's from someone that they hugely respect. Imagine them being encouraged. Imagine them being challenged. Imagine them celebrating, thinking, wow, yeah, right, exactly, that's exactly what God did for us. Yeah, that's right. Boy, did we just forget that for a moment. You know, we need to celebrate that. And, and then imagine them being challenged and saying, well, well of course we can. Paul is, knows what we were called to do. He's the one that God sent to us to establish us. And different to us, you know, it was weeks ago when we talked about the first chapter and the first three chapters and all that encouraging stuff. So we've had all this time, but for them, they're at the finally. It was only 30 minutes ago that they heard all of the, the amazing stuff, all the encouragement. Depends how fast Tychicus read, I suppose. And so they would have been filled with thankfulness. They would have read that and they would have said, Wow, thanks, Paul. This is what we need. This is the shot in the arm we needed. It's like a business bringing in a motivational speaker. You know how they do that nowadays. They bring in someone just to say, come on, guys, you can do this. Here's your market. You're good at this. Now get on with it. And the boss is, boss is more interested in the get on with it, obviously. But that's what they would have heard. And I can imagine, I can't think of, well, I can think of some other ways, but I can imagine <coughs> that gathering together as a church hearing this letter, hearing from Paul who was in prison and they didn't, you know, they, they couldn't phone every week. They didn't hear from him last Monday. Oh yeah, I talked to Paul last week. It would have been a long time before they heard from him and they've heard from him. They would have sat there on tender hooks waiting for the message. And I can imagine after being encouraged the way they were, especially since only like 15 or 30 minutes ago, there was just this whole gushing of how blessed they were, how much God had done for them. I can imagine they wanted to celebrate as they would have celebrated Lord's Supper. I reckon they would have had communion together. They would have said, wow, that's worth celebrating. Because Paul said, remember what God did for you? Remember how much he did? 
Remember that you were dead in your sin? Remember that you were, you were, you were messed up. It, was gonna, it wasn't going to end well for you. But God, he stepped in. He stepped in and he took all your sin on himself. God sent his son who would take all your sin on himself. And, he, and it's not, not anything you've done, but it was a gift of grace from God. How amazing. You didn't deserve it. In fact, you deserved the opposite. And yet this is what God did. Send his son Jesus to die for, for you. You now have salvation. You belong to a new family. You have eternal life. You can live life in the confidence of knowing that God is with you, living in you right now. You have power to live the life that God called you to live. All of that sort of stuff. This is fresh in their mind. You heard it weeks ago. This is fresh in their mind. So this, this is, we need to celebrate this. And so that's what we're going to do. Because they would have been reminded, the leaders of the church would have been reminded that when we gather as a community, and they might have celebrated, you know, there's some, some um, commentaries that would suggest that every time the community of God gathered together, they would celebrate communion. Because it was always a great celebration of why we belong together. Because of what Jesus had done for us. And so they would have been reminded by their, um, by their leaders and I don't know whether they had it all set up nicely like this by someone as good as Andrew Schramm. But they would have been, you know, they would have sat around the table and they would have been reminded, you know, um, of the First Supper. They would have reminded, why are we doing this? What happened? And, and who said? Who said this is now related to? But they would have been reminded by their leaders that at the First Supper, Jesus was with his disciples. And after he'd given thanks... And they were sitting there in expectation. He'd given thanks. He took the bread and he broke it. And he said something really astounding. He said, this is my body, broken for you. Broken? Why? What's happening to Jesus? This is my body, broken for you. And as they were sharing the food and they came time for the, the drink, then, then Jesus stopped and he drew their attention. And he said, guys, this is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins now the disciples were still wondering what that was all about they'd heard bits and pieces but it hadn't sunk in yet but the Ephesians they knew what that was all about they just heard Paul talk about that and remind them of it and they would be celebrating and saying of course this is who we are why should we worry about what's on the outside because Christ has redeemed us through his own blood and through the breaking of his own body. That's what we can celebrate. We can get to the end of Ephesians and you might not remember the first part. But remember this, that Jesus Christ, but God, stepped in and made your life new. You are now the new person because of what Christ has done. We celebrate that. We remember what that's what makes us community. That's what makes us who we are. So we're going to celebrate that. I'm going to ask our leaders to come forward. And then ask you to come forward and take the elements and sit back down and we'll share them together. So maybe if we can... Just imagine what the Ephesians were, were feeling at this point with a celebrating together. And there would have been a whole lot more noise than we make in our church. I guarantee that in their culture.
But maybe we can imagine what they felt like, the gratefulness and the thankfulness that they felt from hearing the good news for them again and what Jesus had done. So as you eat, take this, remember and believe that the body of Christ was broken for the complete forgiveness of all of our sin. And likewise, as we drink, take this and remember the blood of Jesus was shed for the complete forgiveness of all of our sin. God, we want to Thank you that just like the Ephesian community, we as the One Hope community can be encouraged by the same message that Paul wrote to them. And we can take it as written to us. We can take it not just as Paul's words written to us, but we can take it as you communicating with us. And Lord, Holy Spirit, we want to pray that that word would impact on our hearts, that our sense of of, of gratefulness, our sense of celebration would be awakened, our sense of, of purpose, of, um, of joy knowing that you're with us would be awakened and renewed and, and in areas where that's gone quiet or where we've struggled or where things have pushed against us, Lord, Holy Spirit, we pray that we would be awakened with a new sense of purpose, a new sense of calling and a recognition of all that you've given us, that you have indeed given us everything we need. And Lord, to be reminded that, that we can stand strong in your might. Every time we try to stand strong in our own might, Lord, we, we fall over or things don't work the way we want them. Holy Spirit, teach us to stand firm in your might, in the might of God himself. Help us to understand what it means to, to have the truth, to acknowledge and to wear the righteousness of God to walk ready with the gospel, to have the gospel, to be, to be ready and prepared for what you call us to do, for, to have that helmet, that salvation that secures our mind and helps us to know that we know that we will be with you, that we are new. And Lord, as we, as we move forward, teach us and help us to train and learn more how to use the sword of the Spirit, to use your word as a, an, an, an offensive, uh, offensive weapon, but also as one that encourages us and grows us as well. That your truth would resound. And Lord, the word is, your word is full of many examples that talks about your kingdom coming here on earth, that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We know that the Ephesian church was called to be a part of that. And no, in no less way, we are as well. So help us to, be, to stand up and be ready for the cause. Thank you for your word. Thank you for living with us. Thank you for the cross, Jesus. Thank you for being willing to do all that was necessary to make the way clear for us. We glorify you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.